This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce, delivering payment technology for a smarter campus, and by Entangled Solutions. This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Michael Horn, on the phone from Boston. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Obviously, as the coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19, has spread rapidly around the globe. Following up on our last episode, American higher education continues to find itself in the headlines as campuses have shuttered their face-to-face classes and, in several cases, asked their students not to return after spring break. College and university leaders are being forced to make up the rules on the fly as they respond to the latest news and implications of the spread of the disease, make plans for faculty to teach remote or online classes, and try to strike the right balance between the need for social distancing and other considerations of their campus's constituents. As leaders make these tough calls and faculty move their classes online, today in this episode of Future You, Jeff and I go beyond the headlines to talk about those on the front lines of these surreal moves and explore what will happen next. And to do that, we're welcoming two guests to our podcast. First, Dr. Lori Bernofsky, the provost of Westchester University. And then in the second of three segments, we'll have Christine Hafer, who is a professor in the Department of Education of Jeff's alma mater, where he's a trustee, Ithaca College. But first, welcome to the show, Lori. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me. So your campus announced on Tuesday, March 11th, that you will no longer offer face-to-face classes and that you're moving to remote delivery. Can you take us behind the scenes on that decision? What were the considerations and how did things unfold? Because obviously these, uh, this disease and the news around it has been changing so much on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sure, I'm happy to. Um, A couple of things are important to understand about what was happening behind the scenes for us. First, uh, we had put an ad hoc response team in place, which was really just a small group with representation from each of the divisions to function as a kind of uh, crisis response think tank. Um, This this is a subset of our, we have a regular, much larger crisis response team, so this is just a smaller version, five-member team. We needed this team to be able to run rapidly through multiple scenarios and make recommendations to cabinet because, as you just mentioned, information has just been changing so quickly. So that small team was really critical in laying out very rapidly for us the broad framework and the considerations for the multiple scenarios they were looking at, and we would get recommendations from them daily. At the same time, we had this um, opportunity for us related to spring break. So our students are gone right now. So are our faculty. We had done a survey of our students before spring break, just in anticipation of trying to think through issues. Uh, We asked them where they were going to travel and what modes of travel they were using. And um, out of our 18,000 students, 10,000 plus answered that survey. So we knew that 3,000 of our students intended to travel either domestically or globally during the break. And uh, thinking through their their return to campus really gave us a framework for the decision. So we felt like we had this moment in time where our campus is relatively empty, and we understood that we had to be very mindful of the opportunity to minimize risk. So so that's fascinating to, A, get a survey response rate that high with that many students. That's amazing. Uh, It shows the engagement, obviously, of your student body. But I, I guess... Was that the moment when you knew that this step was inevitable, that this was the direction you were going, or was there a different moment as you all were looking at this when you said, this is the moment, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go to this remote delivery now? 
Yeah, actually, there was a different moment. Um, so that sort of set the stage. But um, uh, so let me say this first. Our president has this saying. We hear this a lot. Hope is not a strategy. So um, we had been thinking, like many other institutions, of having students and faculty not return for just those two weeks after spring break to give us some time to see how things were going to develop before making the move to these alternative instructional modalities, and quite frankly, to give us time to prepare for that kind of a move. So we were getting asked what the triggering event would be for us to continue remote instruction for the remainder of the semester, you know, sort of after those two weeks. And we realized, as we were thinking through what would that triggering event look like, we realized there was another equally important question. What would a triggering event be that would allow us to welcome everybody back to campus at the end of those two weeks? So, you know, would it be no new cases in the U.S. or in Pennsylvania for a week? Like, what would that look like? So our president asked us if any one of us had confidence that that's where we would be two weeks from now. And quite frankly, none of us did. So we decided that rather than delaying that hard decision, we would make it now based on the best information we have in the context of uncertainty, rather than relying on hope as a strategy. And this way, we could give our students, faculty, and staff more time to prepare to successfully complete the spring semester under these extraordinary circumstances. So again, the work of our, the work our small group had done really helped enormously here because we already had the scenarios laid out. So once we realized that none of us believed things would be dramatically better in two weeks, the decision to implement one of those scenarios became more straightforward. So, Lori, uh, the wording in the university's announcement seems kind of potentially important to me. You said that you will be moving to remote delivery, not online learning per se. You know, is there a distinction um, in your mind be, be, uh, between the two, um, and, and, and why do you think that matters? Yeah, so there is for us, um, Jeff, the distinctions actually related to how our faculty curriculum committee has defined online or distance education. So distance education for us means that 80% or more of the course is delivered in an online format. And typically these courses are also asynchronous, meaning they're not held at the same time with each student. So remote delivery is a broader term, and that encompasses the Department of Education's guidance around the range of delivery that's acceptable during times of disruption, you know, such as the one that we're in. So that broader range of modalities, remote delivery, that can include, you know, something as basic as email, conference calls, it can include synchronous Zoom sessions, and certainly includes the more sophisticated online technologies such as lecture capture. So Zoom, for example, something lots of us use for meetings and we're all familiar with, you can also use that to teach in real time. You can have up to 300 students, you can have faculty doing lectures and PowerPoints and interacting with students using video and audio and even real-time polling. So for us, we really wanted to make it clear that this remote delivery could take many types of forms depending on the expertise and comfort level of, of a faculty member. That's incredibly helpful to and clarifying because I think we've been seeing these terms so much out there right now that it's been hard to parse them out. So that's incredibly clarifying. I guess starting to think about how you implement remote learning, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you all were in the somewhat fortunate position that you're able to give faculty, you know, essentially two weeks to prepare. Uh, are, are faculty on campus right now? What are the supports that you're providing? And, and what are the questions and fears that you're hearing from faculty as well? Yeah, um, well, we're, we've really been fortunate that we had a mild spring and we actually had no snow days, which I can never remember happening. happening. So, 
you know, we, we realized we, we've got this time. We haven't had to lose any time on snow days. So we decided to leverage that to give both our students and faculty these two weeks to prepare for a transition, which is, is a pretty big transition for us. Um, our students and our faculty, neither of them are on campus right now, but we are engaged with them over email, certainly, in making sure we provide the support they need to successfully transition for the remainder of the semester. I will say one of the critical pieces for us that's been um, uh, very, very helpful, we have a really great relationship with our faculty leaders um, because we've got a really deeply ingrained culture of shared governance. It's not just lip service here. We really do shared governance. And that's built on mutual respect and trust. So we were able to ask our faculty leaders, just a handful, six or seven folks, to meet with us Tuesday and to think through the transition they gave us lots of feedback, asked many, many questions, and that really helped us think through what do we have to do to gear up here for both our faculty and students and address their concerns. So the supports we have in place um, include um, support from our distance ed instructional designers. They actually help people um, design on online content. We have online library services, electronic delivery of library materials. We have technology support for those who need it from our IT folks. We're, we're giving extended hours in all of our support offices, so we'll, that will help us ensure that faculty and students um, feel prepared, not just getting ready, but during this um, remote delivery time, we'll keep those extended hours. So we're at the beginning of the process right now, so to your question about what are the, the questions and concerns, you know, we just made the announcement two days ago, so I don't really see themes, per se, around questions and fears yet, but I can say, in general, I think the, the, the biggest uh, issue faculty want to address is making sure they can meet the learning objectives for their courses so that students are prepared as they move forward through their degree progress, even in the midst of this sort of remote delivery um, uh, experience. Lori, so the, there's a lot of equity issues involved in, in what's happening right now. You know, you're part of a larger system there in, in Pennsylvania. You know, you've decided to move in this direction. I think one or two of the other systems, uh, system institutions have as well, but not all of them have. Uh, uh, you know, is, you just rattled off a bunch of resources that you have that maybe some of your other sister uh, campuses don't have. So so what, what uh, interactions are you having first with those other campuses? And then secondly, there's an equity issue within your own student body, right? So some students have access to, uh, uh, you know, to, you know, uh, broadband and, and, and great technology. Others don't. So have you, what have you thought about that internally? So more externally with your sister campuses and then internally with your own campuses on this equity question. Sure. Um, so in terms of, uh, in terms of externally, I will say right now, the other campuses that I'm aware of, Everybody has just decided to do sort of the two-week piece. Um, I, I'm, I don't believe any other PASHE school right now. PASHE is our state system, by the way. I'm not aware of anybody deciding for the entire semester the way that we have. Um, but certainly, if, if that starts happening and we needed to do some resource sharing, we have a, a built-in um, built culture um, around helping each other. So if that would come to pass, you know, obviously, we, we, would, we would work through that. Um, in terms of our own um, our own campus, we are very aware of um, the differences um, the differences in resources that students students have. We believe we have an obligation under all circumstances for all of our students uh, to make sure that they are um, uh, able to have learning experiences um, that promote their success. So even moving to this remote instruction, 
that's no exception. Um, in order to get that done, we've inventoried our laptops and our iPads, and we're deploying a survey right now to our students, asking them about their access. Do you have a computer device? Do you have an internet um, point? Uh, if they don't, we can use that information to make sure we give them loaners. We also, so not just a loaner in terms of a computer or an iPad, but we also have wireless hotspots that we can loan them to use for the remainder of the semester. Equity piece here, we absolutely have our arms around and we would certainly um, provide advice or help to our sister schools as needed. So just as we as we wrap up here, one, one last uh, uh, question, which is, you know, there's this saying that uh, crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, and I'm curious, just from your perspective, what, what's the opportunity in all this, uh, you know, for your campus and, and for regional publics uh, and colleges and uni universities more generally? And, and what are your biggest concerns on the other side of it? Sure, sure. Well, let, let, me, let me just say this first. I think that a crisis is a terrible thing, full stop, Right. Um, right. You know, as yep. much as we're learning and as much as I'm proud of the way our faculty and staff have pulled together to do something really extraordinary in the service of our students, this is certainly not the way I would ever want to see that happen. But having said that, the opportunity for us, there really are opportunities that are important. For example, you know, keeping track of lessons learned, some really hard lessons learned, and sharing them with, you know, our sister institutions and others. Um, refining processes that need to be refined, uh, you know, filling gaps that we find. You are responding in a hurry under a, uh, some very expected set of circumstances. And yeah, we're finding some gaps and, and that certainly helps us to be better for the future. I guess thinking more broadly, I would say this too, despite all the rhetoric about higher education in the U.S. being calcified or unable to change or even worse, unresponsive to our students' needs, I think for all of us, we have this opportunity right now to demonstrate that we can and we will do whatever it takes to focus on the success of our students, even in the most challenging of times. Um, you know, I'm reading every day about other universities making either a decision like ours or uh, even just the two weeks and entertaining the notion of these modality shifts. So, and I'm painfully aware of the massive lift that is for institutions, faculty, and staff. So. I'm really in awe of the commitment to student success we see all around us, and I hope that I hope that that message gets that gets clear as we think about really universities across the country. That's a perfect way to end it, I think, on that message. And so, thank you so much for joining us, especially amidst these times. And we'll be right back on Future You. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce. Nelnet Campus Commerce delivers payment technology for a smarter campus. The secure payment solutions for higher education are PCI Level 1 validated and integrate with every major ERP. From payment processing and refunds to payment plans and online storefronts, Nelnet Campus Commerce helps process payments on campus. Learn more at campuscommerce.com. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to Future You. We're now joined uh, by Christine Hafer at, at Ithaca College, where she's an assistant pr uh, professor in the Department of Education. Christine, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So as the coronavirus and COVID-19 has spread around the world, 
talk to us what it's been like uh, as a faculty member on campus. What, what are the questions being asked by, by you and your fellow faculty members? What are people worried about? And how have those questions, fears, and hopes sort of changed on a daily basis, given how much uh, our understanding of this pandemic has changed over the last few weeks? Well, we're in an interesting scenario at Ithaca College because this week is our spring break. So it's causing more issues than less in a lot of ways because we aren't cohesive and not all together. We have faculty that have left the area for the break. We have students that obviously have left the area for the break. So rolling information out to everyone has been a challenge because maybe not everyone is on their email regularly to look for updates. And we're trying to figure out um, how to best prepare everybody in the event that we would come back. So last night we received our email from the college that has extended spring break one week while we try to figure out how to get everything online and we're moving to online classes starting, um, I believe it's March 20, whatever that following Monday is, March 23rd through April 3rd. So that's what our college has decided to do because people were more worried about the impact that it would be to have all these students come back to campus after they'd been traveling who knows where and possibly having a community contamination spread. Sure. So that makes sense. It gives you a weak buffer to sort of uh, make sure that everyone's on the same page, give people time to get mm-hmm. those courses uh, online or in remote settings. What, what's the opinion of faculty members on this question of, uh, you know, on suspending in-person classes and moving to a remote format? So then, you know, feelings are a little mixed. There's some that think it's a wise move because it protects as many people as possible. Others wonder if it may be an overabundance of caution. But as we're seeing, um, many colleges have already put this into place or are about to follow suit. So, And I think what medical experts, because our administration has been meeting with as many experts as possible to try to gauge what the situation will be or the trajectory of a pandemic, um, but they've pretty much come to the conclusion that it has to happen. So I think the faculty members realize it's going to happen. But of course, there's the concerns that come if they've never taught online or created online classes. So Christine, I think that's a, a great point. So, you know, as um, folks teach remotely, what's what's that going to look like? Is it going to be different per discipline, per individual faculty member? And, and for you personally, right, you know, have you taught online before? And, and what about your you know, fellow faculty members, you know, what, what is kind of their, their comfort level with, with remote teaching? Well, for me personally, last fall, I had a broken leg and had to teach remotely using online services such as Zoom. And what we did was we put a camera in the classroom. My students came to class. I taught remotely from home um, through my computer's camera. And so I'm in a good place because I've already had my classes transition to that once and I can do it again. Other people within my department have not done it before. They have a little bit more concern, and faculty on campus in general, some have familiarity with this, some don't. So there's these challenges, not only of using technology they've never used before, but also having to recalibrate their syllabi and moving their lessons to an online format is its own difficulty, particularly if you have a class that has hands-on activities, labs, that type of thing. How does that translate to an online scenario where students are in remote areas, the faculty are in remote areas, you're doing everything online. So there are some concerns, but many of our faculty um, that have online teaching experience have reached out to the provost's office to offer to help their colleagues during this temporary transition. 
and peer-to-peer support is critical. Right. So peer support is a, is a, is a, uh, is a great point, right? And, and so how can, do you think faculty members with experience teaching remotely best help those who haven't, right? So, you know, how do you think you can best help others? By giving practical examples of what worked for me, I think that's what people are seeking. They don't want, you know, this overall, everyone can teach online kind of experience. They want to hear, how do I move my lesson to an online situation? And for people like me that have had to do it, I can give tips and say, you know, this is what worked best for me. Maybe try this format for this. Maybe change this assignment so it works on an online situation. So if they can get practical examples of people who've been through it who can give them advice and suggestions, that's going to be very helpful, even more so than trying to, like, tackle technology they don't use. It's going to be more, I think, questions on that. And that's the type of peer-to-peer support I think a lot of people who have online teaching experience can offer. So that's the peer-to-peer support and how faculty will band together. What about from an institutional level? What's Ithaca offering to faculty as as you move to this online format in terms of uh, not just, frankly, technologically, but from an instructional design perspective, even mentally to support uh, what's a big shift for some faculty members who haven't done this before like you have? It's, they've been so amazingly supportive. Our administration has been so proactive at Ithaca College with coming up with solutions to support faculty. So, for example, next week, the provost's office and our Office of Teaching and Learning with Technology and our Center for Faculty Excellence are all offering workshops and other professional development opportunities to faculty to help people prepare to temporarily transition our pedagogy to a remote or an online model. And we're relying on two specific platforms, Sakai and Zoom. These are going to be our primary tools for remote learning. We've already had pushes out um, with emails, giving us webinars and other links that we can go to to help us become familiar with those tools if we aren't already. So they're and they're wonderful step-by-step supports, but they also are having on-campus um, workshops, so we can come in and do that as well if if faculty are able to do so um, to travel to campus. And if they aren't, they have remote um, learning set up for us. So there's been a lot of support, which has been helpful. So it's not just learning the tools, but also in those webinars are instructional design um, suggestions for how they can redo their course. So Christine, what are you, what are you op- optimistic about, about wh- how this is going to go? And, and what worries you the most uh, about how students are going to learn remotely? What worries me the most about the students is issues of equity. For example, students may be somewhere that does not have strong or consistent Wi-Fi connection, or they might not have access to reliable technology. So that concerns me quite a bit. And our provost's office and our president as well have also, uh, have made a, a special statement to tell faculty, you need to be aware of that and be patient with your students because they may be dealing with those issues as well. So no one should be punished during this time, basically, right? If they are having technological difficulties, if they don't have consistent Wi-Fi, if they don't have a a good laptop that works with a camera and all this. So that's the type of thing that concerns me the most. I am optimistic about the learning online because I have seen it work successfully for me last fall when I had to do it for two months using Zoom. So I know my students have that capability. I think the biggest thing is making sure that you maybe do a push out to your students ahead of time saying, here are some steps to look at ahead of this happening. Here's how the syllabus is going to look from here on out. And then the first time you have class with them online, actually use that class to work through 
troubleshooting. Here's what you where you look for this. This is how you respond to this. This is how you use the system. And using that class to walk through the system so people have time to ask questions instead of just jumping right into instruction and, and pushing forward. Give them some yeah, time that, to ease into it. Yeah, and that makes a ton of sense. I mean, in that building of culture, thinking about that sense mm-hmm. of culture, I'm, I'm going to ask you to sort of step out of the present moment a little bit and forecast into the future. Uh, do you have a sense of what things will look like next year when students and faculty return in the fall from all this? You know, I mean, there's going to be a whole class yeah. that might even experience a remote graduation and a, and a whole different group that will have been disconnected from the campus. Uh, for several weeks upon return. Has there been discussion around that yet and thinking about the culture Mm -hmm. of the campus, obviously, as a residential-based school? So this is the toughest part, I think. The loss of graduation will be one of the toughest pieces for this class um, if they don't have that opportunity, losing that opportunity to walk with their peers after working so hard for four years. That will be very difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. We haven't had any confirmation that that could happen yet, but we have been you know, warned that it's a possibility. And for the returning students, the disconnect will also be tough for them, particularly those who are in courses that are specific to their major and require more intensive hands-on experience. Removing it to the online and remote learning, it's not that they, you know, maybe lose the content, but they might lose other things that happen face-to-face or person-to-person. And it may give them a different twist on a course that should have been a deeper maybe learning ability. Um, for example, our education students will lose their field experiences um, where they go into schools and they observe teachers and students interacting. If they're not allowed to do that, it's hard to kind of teach something like that remotely. Christine, one last uh, one last question before we uh, wrap up. Uh, often, you know, oftentimes there are opportunities for change and innovation in a crisis like this. Are, 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 as a faculty member, are you thinking about those opportunities right now? Do you see any potential silver lines from this crisis, or are you just trying to manage it from moment to moment? I feel like one piece I'm seeing is how our administration has worked intensively and thoughtfully to respond to this crisis and ensure the safest possible scenario for faculty, staff, and students. And it really shows me if there's any silver lining, it's knowing that we are so well supported. They are considering the best way to protect and support everyone who's part of our campus, and they're being very thoughtful about this. Um, It's also a positive message to all of us that we can come up with innovative and meaningful ways to still deliver education to our students and keep the flow of their learning moving using the best techniques we have at our disposal. So I think that that's another piece that's, that could still come out of this is seeing that we can survive these kind of crises with these techni- techniques. Christine, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us and all the best in, in making this move. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You have a good day. We'll be right back. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce delivering payment technology for a smarter campus, and by Entangled Solutions. Welcome back to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Horn, who's on the phone from Boston. We're practicing uh, social distancing here as far as we can uh, between Washington, D.C. and uh, in Boston. Michael, you know, you've written uh, about online learning and its potential to improve learning in schools. So now we're in this moment. This moment has uh, in movement has arrived where campuses are moving en masse to remote learning, often delivered online. You know, what are your thoughts? Is this an opportunity or is there going to be backlash as people rush to get online? And in some cases, it may just not be very good. Yeah, I, you know, I think Lori did a good job of, frankly, 
uh, creating some nuance, uh, Jeff, uh, between online learning and remote learning, which he defined as a much bigger umbrella term, because I think the reality is that a lot of what we see might not be online. It might be asynchronous email. It might be uh, a variety of tactics just to keep continuity of learning, not necessarily online. But my own thought is that I think there's, it's much more likely that there will be backlash to online learning than that this will be the moment where it accelerates and somehow uh, overtakes uh, the higher education system, just simply because there's so much of a rush right now. There's not a lot of resources in a lot of places. There wasn't a lot of disaster preparedness plans in places to go online rapidly. And so faculty, through no fault of their own, are, are rushing to make this stuff up. And as we know, uh, good online learning experiences take a lot of work. They're team efforts. They're not solitary uh, pursuits. And just putting your lecture online or just jumping on a Zoom, it'll be okay, but I don't think it'll be this moment for online learning. The one exception to that might be, you know, places like Western Governors University or Southern New Hampshire University uh, that are exclusively online. Uh, for them, they might look like a much more attractive option going forward because they obviously put a lot of instructional design and effort into what they design. So that might be the one sort of caveat to that. But in general, I think it's much more likely that we see a backlash to online learning than this becomes the moment. Yeah. So, Michael, why is it so... Why is moving online in the year 2020 so, so and so doing it so quickly so complicated? What what's not straightforward about it? Yeah, I mean, for, I think there's a couple things going on. One is it's not just like taking my face-to-face -face thing and just moving it online. Uh, it's actually much more complicated. Uh, and what we've seen is that the best online experiences. Uh, take instructional designers, it's often not about the faculty face in front of someone. It takes advantage of multimedia. You don't want to overwhelm working memory capacity and things like that. But also faculty being comfortable asking questions and creating an active learning experience uh, in an online environment, it, I would say it's critical and face-to-face -to, -face to have that. We often don't, but it's even more so in online where it's just so easy to tune out and multitask and so forth. I mean, you've been covering this for uh, well over a decade now, Jeff, and, and thinking about MOOCs and all that. What, what's your take about why it's so complicated uh, in the year 2020? Well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, many faculty have just not embraced it uh, and, in fact, fought it for, for so long. So I, I think that there is a group of faculty that have embraced online learning and those who just don't like it and have never done it. Um, and so trying to turn them particularly is, is going to be difficult. The thing that I don't quite get, though, is that I don't understand why uh, in, in 2020, we don't have more of a library of resources around online courses, right? So many courses that uh, institutions teach are, you know, taught everywhere, right? So, you know, the, the most basic courses are, you know, probably, you know, 70% of them are, are taught everywhere. And so I don't understand why this is a perfect time where if we had a, a learning library of free open resources that faculty can kind of pick and choose, they can put together, in my mind, an online course much more Put, put it together much more quickly uh, than, than right now what I think many of them are facing is to try to put their resources online, try to find what's out there. And I, I think that's what's, what's difficult. Michael, one, la one last question before we wrap up this uh, episode. You know, we've, we've talked to our guests today a lot about the equity issue, which we've heard a lot about as, as especially those first institutions, which tend to, be, were, tend to be the wealthiest and most exclusive institutions decided to go this route to, to shut down uh, 
uh, at least temporarily in some cases, and, and move their students online is, you know, what happens to those students who kind of have nowhere to go, right? Where where, where the food and, and living on campus is, is critical to them. Uh, they can't buy a, uh, they can't buy a, a ticket home uh, at the last minute, right? Because they don't have necessarily the money. Like what, how, what about um, as these institutions uh, try to serve these students in their midst, do they need to think more about uh, at this moment? Yeah, I, you know, in some ways, I think the conversation around refunds and and, and parents looking for tuition, uh, getting tuition money back, and so forth, maybe misses this question of how do you actually repurpose those dollars to support marginalized and low-income student populations? You know, if you look at a place like Harvard. Uh, if, if you're on financial aid, they're going to provide uh, some amount of stipend. It's not significant, but some amount of stipend to help you move back uh, to home if that's what's uh, the next step to allow you to store your belongings uh, on campus, things of that nature that are, I, I would say, they're still, frankly, probably inadequate for certain students, uh, but there's steps in the right direction. If you're at a regional uh, public or, or a community college where you have significantly fewer uh, resources around this and you're thinking about Internet connectivity, frankly, food security, health care, things like that for, for students, it's a much bigger lift. And I would rather us start to think through, A, how do we repurpose tuition dollars to support those uh, circumstances? Because we, we would be doing them if they were in residential uh, environments, right? We'd be putting some of these supports around that. How do we do that remotely rather than think about refunds? And then secondly, what can state governments do around this? You know, thinking about opening up dollar flows uh, to support the local uh, economy and local communities where these students might end up being uh, and giving them vouchers in effect to start to take care of some of those things, start to maybe give them internet connectivity, laptops with MiFi, leveraging smartphones in, in different ways. I mean, frankly, that gets into one of the questions also, which is, should all of this learning be online, so to speak, or is mobile learning a better format in many cases? And I think it, it probably is. But those are at least a couple of the things that, that occur to me. What, what's your own take? Yeah, I think the how can state and localities help uh, these institutions right now, I think is going to be critically important because in, in many of these places, the college is the largest, not only employer, but pro- provides so much economic development to the local towns. And if this ends up being extended by weeks, um, or in some cases, you know, the rest of the semester is indeed canceled, that's going to have a real impact on, on some of these uh on some of these local communities. And, and again, so how can we think not only about helping uh, uh, the students who are really marginalized by this, but also, you know, small businesses and others in the in the community who are marginalized by this as as well. And so that brings us to the end of, of this episode. We're actually going to be taking a small hiatus uh, after uh, this episode uh, and then picking back up uh, before we take our traditional summer hiatus. So we'll be coming back into your subscription feeds in uh, in a couple of weeks. But until then, please uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, most of you are, are on campuses that are, are listening to us. Uh, best of luck in all the work that you're doing uh, with your students and your colleagues. Uh, and, and hopefully this uh, too shall pass. Uh, and we'll be back to talking about some of the other big issues in, in higher education in the coming weeks. But again, thank you for listening to Future You, and we'll catch you next time. Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.